Let's go. Okay, you are now listening to the Poptimus Podcast, and today we have uh, Adam A. and from Gateway Mastering Studios, and also Ned Lee. My good friend Ned Lee. This is actually the first time me and Ned are going to be doing a podcast together. We've yeah. discussed it for a long time. Cool. I'm glad so, I could be here with yes. you. Right. Yeah, Ned wanted to kind of kick things off today. He had a few questions to ask you. Sure. For starters. Yeah, so to preface this, I have taken Adam's um, Recording 101 class. Um, so do you want to just give a brief introduction as to what you do for work? Sure. And yeah. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, I'm a mastering engineer here at Gateway Mastering Studios. I started here in 1998 as a production engineer, and by about 2000, uh, uh, became a mastering engineer here. And, and I've been developing clientele and mastering records ever since then in the room that we're, we're speaking in at the moment. Um, the class that Ned speaks of is, is one of two classes that I teach at the University of Southern Maine School of Music. They're called uh, Principles of Digital Audio and Music Production and Advanced Principles of Digital Audio Music Production, right. uh, uh, which is a sort of a side gig for me that I really enjoy. I, I talk a lot at um, <clears throat> industry events where there's like AES or South by Southwest, things for the Grammys and things like that, and I really enjoy teaching. And there's such a great group of students and people that, uh, faculty and people that are involved at the School of Music that I've uh, been fortunate enough to do that for many years as well, since about 2001. Uh, but primarily I'm a mastering engineer and I have clientele that ranges from, from artists to superstar artists and everything in between uh, my job is to make music sound the best that it possibly can recorded music that is sound the best that it possibly can uh, uh, and I've been fortunate to work with a lot of really great artists and and whether it is indie or superstar and everything in between whatever those words actually <laughs> mean uh, uh, my drive my passion is working on recorded music great music whether it's something that you know is a house an artist that's a household name or some really cool indie artist that that has a niche following uh, what, what gets me going and what gets me excited about what I do is is just working on great music and being a part of right. the sonic presentation of great recorded Definitely. music and I've been yeah. fortunate enough to do it my entire adult life so yeah that is yeah. very very fortunate. It, it certainly is. I mean, it was it was uh, very fortunate of me when I started. I started my first recording gig in 1996 while I was still in school, working as a recording engineer at a small multi-track studio. And you know, starting a career even in the 90s when the record industry was much healthier, uh, at least financially healthier than it is today, uh, by a lot um, was was a daunting enough task then. But to continue to do it, uh, uh, and, and gosh, I feel for folks starting out now, it's that much harder in, in right. the 2010s. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but being that this is the Poptimist pod, pod right. yeah. I am a very optimistic right. person yeah, myself. Yeah. And, and, you know, as I'm sure you guys feel, <laughs> music does so much for people for the human race in general that like, right. it's not going anywhere. We're just in this place of flux in terms of how people right. consume music yeah. and how yeah. they integrate with it commercially, I think. Right. Yeah, the business direction, <clears throat> I'm moving down in Nashville now, uh -huh. so that's that's where I'm at. Um, I've been there for a little over a year. Okay. Uh, I've been away from Maine for about two years now, and just dealing with the business and seeing, I've already seen geez, I don't even know how many people I've already seen come and go. Sure. Just come to town and then they just, they're there for six months and then gone. Yeah. Like an emergency comes back up at home and then they just never come back. Sure. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's a brutal, it can be a very brutal business. I've experienced the lows and I'm starting to experience the mids now. Sure. <laughs> which is, for which you. is nice. It's a step maybe, in the right Maybe one day the highs. <laughs> right. But, I hope so. Yeah. Um, maybe you can just give kind of a brief overview of what mastering is for like sure. the average listener who might not know. Sure. I'd be happy yeah. to. So um, uh, I consider mastering the final step in the creative process of making a recording. It really is the final, final creative step and it's yeah. the first step in, in distribution. Um, uh, we're not in the business of mastering CDs. We're not in the business of mastering LPs or mastering streaming audio. We're in the business of making recorded music sound great. That's the last step of the creative process of making a recording and then presenting it 
uh, into the marketplace in its best best way possible, in, in the sense of uh, preparing final masters for distribution and whatever that distribution might be. Here in 2017, that's a number of different things. For almost every project, we end up finding, uh, excuse me, end up outputting a final master for CD, oftentimes for vinyl, for various means of digital distribution and streaming, mastered for iTunes, for, for the Apple Music Store and Apple uh, Apple Music Streaming, um, high-resolution digital audio for various digital distributors. We It's a very fractured uh, uh, distribution model now. Um, but our job is to make recorded music sound its best and then get it into the pipeline in terms of distribution and, and create whatever master formats needed in that regard. On the, the final creative part of the process, that's what I do every day as a mastering engineer. And it's really... Uh, again, the last step of the entire recording process, and you'd start with, you know, pre-production, recording, uh, uh, where you record individual tracks um, or many tracks at once, uh, mixing, which is the act of balancing all those tracks and doing all the final sweetening to the individual tracks and outputting them, uh, uh, you know, for 99% of, of commercially uh, available recordings today in stereo. Then the stereo mix comes to me as a mastering engineer, and my job is to uh, uh, essentially make it sound as great as it can based on what I can do with a stereo mix. And the, the two main types of tools that I use in that domain are, are equalization and dynamics processing, which would be kind of an umbrella for compression limiting and like that. Um, and I use those two, two tools and a number of iterations of them to take a stereo mix and just make it sound as great as it can. And you know, often as part of that conversation, people will say, well, why can't that happen in mixing? And of course, really good mix engineers provide me really great right. sounding mixes. But mastering is still a part of the creative process. We offer a new perspective. We offer it in, uh, uh, you know, the highest quality listening environments like the room that we're in right now. Um, I sit in this room every single day and I hear a cross-section of recordings from all over the world in all walks of the audio and recording life, and uh, that essentially gives me a you know, huge viewpoint, like a macro viewpoint of what really great recordings sound like. Um, and I can take that experience and I can impart it on every recording that I work on. Um, so finalizing a recording creatively and sonically, and then outputting final masters is really what we do here every day. That kind of reminds me of something uh, Jonathan Wyman once said to me. Uh -huh. um, he was taught, we were talking about at one point we're going to work together on something, and basically what he was saying is every step in the process is like more important than the last. He's like, if you don't have good writing, you can't have a good performance. If you don't have a good performance, you can't have good production. If you can't have good production, you can't have good mis mixing. You can't have good mixing, you can't have good mastering. Yeah, and absolutely. In today's day and age, you have to have something quality and something good because there's so much out there. It's hard not to entirely think of it in terms of competition, but it is a competition because someone's going to turn on your recording and they're going to decide within three seconds if they're going to keep listening or not. And I'm the same way. Yeah. I feel like we've been conditioned <laughs> now with technology, although it is very healthy and very good, I think in a lot of ways, there are a lot of new challenges that have uh, come along in this digital day and age that I think we're still trying to catch up with. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you uh, on a number of different levels. And first, I'd just like to say that Jonathan is a, a good friend and colleague of mine. Him and I have been working on records together for pretty much my entire career, um, uh, uh, 16 or 17 years now. Um, as a mastering engineer, and uh, he's he's an amazing uh, record producer and mixing engineer and recording engineer, and he's right on the money with what you you just said, and that all the the steps in the process have to be as best as they possibly can be. You know, arrangement itself leads to good mixing later down the line. Yes. If you haven't, you know, you don't have a good arrangement or the right arrangement, your mix engineer is going to struggle with mixing your recording all day long. It's going to be really hard for them. If they don't output a good mix, that makes my job that much harder. Um, the best sounding recordings I've ever mastered came to me already sounding really great, right. and then I could just take them a few steps mm -hmm further. Um, so that is an, uh, totally true. And I, I also agree with the idea or the notion that you've got to have kind of your best foot forward with your recording. I think even more so now than ever, um, because people are, I don't want to say sophisticated is not a good way to say it, because I don't mean that to be detrimental to the past and people's sure. perception in the past, but yeah. our perception has changed a lot in the digital world. And as you said, if something doesn't sound good off the bat, right. you're not going to gain anybody's attention for more than a handful mm -hmm. of seconds. Yeah. Because 
you know, I grew up watching MTV and listening to FM radio, mm -hmm. and like we were spoon-fed stuff, and a lot of it happened to be really great, yeah. and some of it wasn't. Yeah. Um, uh, but there were very few options. I couldn't just say, well, I don't really like what I'm seeing on MTV now. Let me pull up my iPhone and dial up Spotify and listen to one of millions of different recordings, whatever right. I want to listen to, right? Yeah. So you do have to capture your audience's attention in the best way possible, and doing it with a great recording, uh, th those things go hand in hand. You've got a great performance, a great song, and a great recording that elevates it sonically to the listener, mm -hmm. and that's really important. And that's one of the things that I think has been a major misstep in our industry in the past 15 years or so, is as things shifted from, you know, uh, the heyday of selling CDs and the heyday right. of, of revenue in the recording industry to where we are now, which I would say we live in an, almost an entirely streaming world now, um, as things changed, the, and, and the, the very natu uh, natural notion was to do things quicker, less expensively and mm -hmm. and um the ability to really focus on details and spend let's, let's just get to it like to, to budget being able to to budget things the way recordings used to be budgeted right. has changed so much but it's taken away from the sound of most recordings and i think that that was a huge misstep because what it's meant is that the consumer already started to uh, uh, place less and less value on recorded music. Mm, and right. if, if us as fans of recorded music start listening to new recordings, we're like, they really don't sound good. Right. Then we're putting less value into them and we're, 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 we're feeling less connected to them. Right. And to make a recording sound really great, and the whole point in what all of us do in this industry is to take... Take something that should connect with people to begin with, hopefully a great song and a great performance, mm -hmm. and shine the best light on it so that it connects with the listener, right? Mm -hmm. And if we're not the truest, doing that, The truest vision. Yes, the truest vision. And if we're not doing that, then we lose the listener. And I think that, and I don't want to say it's certainly not across the board by any means, but we were making better sounding recordings 15 or 20 years ago on average than we mm -hmm. are today for a number of different reasons. And a lot of them come down to practical and financial reasons or more so financial first that drives practical reasons. Yeah. I think personally right. that's, that's really exciting to me mm -hmm. because it's created basically this giant black hole in the industry that you can, there are no rules now. I mean, mm -hmm. in some ways there have never been really any rules in the music business. But now more than ever, it is the Wild West. Like right. once the whole Napster thing happened, the floodgates opened and there was no going back. Yep. And personally, I've, I've dealt with a lot of musicians down in Nashville how, you know, they bemoan the digital age and how horrible it is. And I, I have the complete opposite thought process on it. I see guys like Dan Auerbach down there and Jack White doing their thing. Mm -hmm. And it's really inspiring to see. They figured out how to make it work. And they right. figured out how to make their record sound a certain way with, like old sounds, but they work with guys like Chad Blake that make it sound kind of new. Right. Yeah. So that was one thing I also wanted to talk about was you working on kind of like the, the Black Rock album and what that process was like and what that experience was, was like from start to finish. Sure, sure. So that's one of my favorites. Um, uh, gosh, how many years ago was that now? Four or five years ago, maybe? Uh, I think anyway, longer than that. Maybe it was longer than yeah. that. Okay. Um, that came to me through Chad, who I've done a number of records with, who's also one of my favorites, if not my favorite mix engineer, recording that, yeah. engineer, for many, many years. I mean, I, I was hooked on everything he did in the 90s when I was a, a lot younger. In fact, a lot of my favorite reference recordings when I was in college uh, uh, for recording and music and was just starting as a professional, uh, more than half of my favorite reference recordings were Chad Blake recordings. I love everything he does. I love his vibe. I love the, the his sonics. He's just really great. So I've had the opportunity to work with him a bunch of times and been fortunate enough to work with him a bunch of times, including the Black Rock album. Um, he sent it my direction. He mixed half of it, and another great engineer, uh, Joel Hamilton in New York City at uh, Studio G in New York City, mixed the other half of it. And Joel and I do a lot of records together, and he is also a really amazing recording and mix engineer. So you have these two great engineers that have a, a really good sense of, of bringing an artist's vision home. They were both very different in terms of the way they present mixes to me as a mastering engineer. And I knew that going into it because I'd worked with them both a bunch. Yeah. But uh, part of, and there was a third engineer who, I'm sorry, the, the, that person's name is gonna escape me at the moment, but I think maybe had a one track on that album. Um, uh, 
But it brings me to another part of the creative process of mastering is the fact that this is very commonplace to have an album come to me that's coming from three different engineers. It's the very same fractal. artist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then a big part of my job is not only to make everything sound great, but make, you know, uh, visualize the album uh, uh, as an album as opposed to just a collection Unified. of recordings. Exactly. Yeah. Unified and have some kind of sonic uh, uh, baseline that works throughout the entire album. Um, and all three engineers did a great job. They were, all did things differently and presented them the recordings or the mixes to me a little bit differently in terms of, you know, the, the amount of compression they would use or the level they would present their mixes at and a number of different things. And my job was to take all those great mixes and make it work as one album, um, which is just a big part of what, what I do. And that, that happens on, I would say, more albums than less, or the majority of the albums that I get are a number of different engineers, oftentimes a number of different producers as well. And that was the case with BlackRock. And, and fortunately, you know, in, in Joel and in Chad, I mean, their stuff just always sounds so great. Um, and they're artists in their own right. Uh, uh, and that's certainly... For sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's an art form, what, what, what Chad does. I mean, yeah. if you look at... I, I really learned more about him, I guess... After listening to like, uh, I think he he mastered um, Brothers or not mastered. He mixed Brothers by Black Keys. Yes. And he started just doing a bunch of stuff, and he's he's all over the radio now. Like all this stuff mm -hmm. he does, I don't I don't know if it's always been that way or if he experienced something a little bit later. But sonically, he there's nothing else that really sounds like him on the radio. He sounds yeah. different. If you have something mixed by him, it's it sounds different. I remember when Do I Want to Know came out by Arctic Monkeys. Mm -hmm. I heard that, and I was like, this reminds me of the Black Keys, and I looked up all the credits for it, and I was like, oh, that's, that's why. Yeah, he, he had his fingerprints <laughs> all over him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, he's amazing, and he, is, he has been doing it at that kind of level his entire career. Yeah. Um, really, I guess, since probably... Some, I, I would venture to guess sometime in the early to middle 80s. I came to know of him by the early 90s, um, with Los Lobos records that, that he was working on at the time. Uh, he did Sheryl Crow's second record, which is a fantastic sounding and like yeah. has so much vibe to it. Um, all the soul coughing records were favorites of mine. He had done all of those. Uh, and the list goes on and on and on. But the thing that I love about him is a mix engineer and is a recording engineer as well, though I think he's primarily focused on mixing these days, is he's very adventurous. He's very artistic and he's very creative. He was always the kind of guy that would do something completely different and create some different right. new sound that nobody had ever created before because he was willing to, to try it and to do it. And mm -hmm. he's just a very creative and artistic guy. Um, and the way I liken his mixes to others, and it's not a disrespect to others, but there are some mix engineers that are, you know, in the top 1% of mix engineers, which is where I place Chad as well, uh, uh, that, that do a killer job and it sounds great on radio and it sounds great, you know, when you listen in the car and it sounds great everywhere and everything sounds sort of perfect, which is awesome unto itself. But Chad's thing to me always feels like it's perfectly not perfect, <laughs> yeah. for lack of a better way of saying it. It's like it, it always, it, his mixes always have so much character to them. Yes. That, and you know, as opposed to being like, well, everything sounds really great. Right. The balance is really awesome. It's another layer Sonically, to the song. Sonically, it's great. Yeah, it's another yeah. layer to the song. It's another yeah. artistic layer to the song yeah. that I think very few do. Uh, I, I'd venture to guess that very few, if any, do it like, none of them do it like him, but very few do it in a similar way. Um, and that's why he's my favorite mix engineer. Mm. I, and I would take that, that extra sense of creativity and artistry and what he does he can he adds value to it he brings something else to it that maybe wasn't originally there he does yeah absolutely mm -hmm. and that's why i've always loved everything that he does um and like i said i've been fortunate to do a lot of records with him including that black rock record which is is just one of my favorites i go back to it often yeah yeah i think dan auerbach to me he's very he's very exciting um as a as a producer um the one thing that I kind of noticed, I really started delving deeply into like the Black Keys and everything mm -hmm. that Dan Auerbach does, and that record was like a huge turning point for him, mm -hmm. because that was pre-Brothers. So Brothers was the next album around. I think they worked with Danger Mouse right before they did Black Rock. They did um, Attack and Release. Right. So they already started heading into a little bit of a different direction. You could hear the change in them as artists that they were going for something else than they had mm -hmm. done before. 
And they did BlackRock, and then after that was Brothers, and the floodgates opened, and now they've been busy ever since, which is which is really cool. Um, I think my favorite personal record that Chad has mixed was the um, the Arcs record. Have you heard the Arcs? I don't think I've heard it. No. It's yours. It uh, the album is called Yours Dreamily. It's Dan Auerbach's um, his his like his other band that he put together. Okay. Yeah, uh, it's kind of crazy. They have two drummers in the band. Um, all the musicians he's playing with are the guys from like Truth and Soul that played with Amy Winehouse on her record. Okay. So I saw them live at Ryman Auditorium down in Nashville, and they had the two drummers. They had one. Um, they had like one monitor on stage. Okay. So it was a Neil Young style. It was super loud in there, super bombastic. It was the heaviest gig I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and um, I don't know, just to go off on a Dan Auerbach tangent, right. but he's very, very exciting. And yeah, he is. Yeah, that, that record, the Black Rock record, I, I really love it a lot and definitely had an impact on me. Awesome. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. And I'll check out that Arcs record. It sounds like right in my wheelhouse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's cool. It's kind of weird. Like, um, they're almost like these... They have like a mariachi band playing with them on the album, cool. so it's it's really strange. It's like yeah. it's totally experimental, and I I think he was probably Dan was probably influenced by by Chad with some of that stuff too with sure. the Los Lobos, right? That, Los Lobos, and yeah. uh, Chad was in a band with some of the guys from Los Lobos called the Latin Playboys. Yeah, which I definitely recommend you checking out because they're like as interesting and cool as Los Lobos is. Latin Playboys are even more experimental and and. Yeah, just a little more wacky and, and fun to listen to. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Really cool stuff. So another um, another question I had about some of your past work is "With sure. Teeth" by Nine Inch Nails. You were mm -hmm. you were kind of mentioning um, before we started today that you did the surround sound mix for that, which most people haven't heard. I didn't really realize that there was a difference at the time. Can you explain a little bit sure. about how you got involved in that process? Sure. So I, I, well, I did the the surround sound mastering on that, and the person that mixed it was an engineer named James Brown, who's worked with Nine Inch Nails for many years, and the Foo Fighters, and so on and so forth. He's really talented. Um, <clears throat> around the time that album came out, one thing that was changing or had been changing for a few years in our industry that unfortunately never really took hold was the, the concept of uh, uh, releasing studio albums in surround sound. And at the time, it was pretty much strictly 5.1, so five full range channels, uh, left, center, right, left surround, right surround, and the 0.1 channel would be a subwoofer that would go up to, you know, about 200 hertz or so. Um, uh, and there were a couple of formats that, and I could sort of see this coming, unfortunately, at the time that didn't survive. Uh, uh, one of them was called DVD Audio, and the other was called Super Audio CD that would deliver audio both in high-resolution digital stereo and in surround sound to the consumer. You just had to have the proper hardware to play it back. And With Teeth came out on a, a, what at the time was called a DVD audio hybrid disc. On one side, and I have a copy of it somewhere around here, but on one side was the the Redbook CD layer that you could play in any CD player. And right. if you flipped it around on the other side... I vaguely rem remember yeah. this now. Yeah. And okay. if you had a DVD audio player, which in, and here's where the confusion is, a DVD audio player, which is new hardware different from a DVD video player, okay. you could play well, the six-channel version of it. Yeah, right. that? Right. Don't put this on the DVD video. Right. Yeah, right. right. And uh, so what, what ended up happening with, with both that format and the Super Audio CD format is uh, aside from some niche recordings that come out now, those formats basically succumbed to the iPod. And you could sort of see it coming. It was like yeah. right around the same time that the iTunes Music Store didn't exist or was just about to exist. The mm -hmm. iPod was just starting to grab hold. Right. The rollout of those two formats was so confusing to the consumer, not to mention the, the initial expense of new hardware and things, right. that all the major record labels, in this country at least, discontinued making recordings on those formats, mm. which also meant that a vast majority of surround sound albums stopped, or, or we were sort of coming on where a lot of surround sound albums were being made, and, and that really uh, 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 fell back quite a bit. Yeah. There are some that are being made, very few pop albums every right. year, mostly it's in the classical domain. Um, yeah. But at any rate, so that was what With Teeth was all about, and James Brown came out for the mastering of it. Um, he did a great job on the mix, and, and what, was, what was cool is if you've ever heard music and surround sound it can be if it's done properly and if it's done right it can be really exciting and really interesting and it's a whole new dimension of audio it's not yeah. just sitting back and listening to right. left and right and discerning a sound stage based on left to right and front to back it's all around you and of course 
Nine Inch Nails and Trent's music lends itself so well yeah. to that. You know, all the layers, all the depth right. of the arrangement. Yeah, sounds like yeah. an amazing experience to hear that and surround sound. It was really, really cool. It was a really yeah. fun experience, and it was really, really well done. Yeah. He seems very, um, like he has a very particular set of ears with what he's mm -hmm. going for. I think Alan Mulder was the one who produced that album. I believe so, yeah. And um, we were kind or of co-produced it maybe with Trent yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly, because he's definitely, <clears throat> he has he has an idea of when, what he wants to do. And the way I always uh, compare his production style, mm -hmm. he always really reminds me of Prince, the way that he drops sure. things out and then brings them back. Or he'll add that's something great. weird. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. Like, this is one of my favorite artists. That's too. exactly who he reminds me of. He's like yeah. the darker, like the dark. I don't know how to explain it exactly, but he's like dark a brooding, prince. yeah, <laughs> the the brooding, brooding prince. prince. Yeah, the angry that's, prince. That's really great. I've never heard anybody say that before, and I completely agree. And yeah, I yeah, it settle in my mind a little bit. It's really true. <laughs> that whole, that with teeth is the album that I'm most familiar with with Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. And it was, I think I started listening to it, like growing up here in Maine, like having the winter, it just mashed. It was so dark and like overcast all the time. But the album itself, it reminds me of, of like an operating room. That's how I would describe it. It's so yeah. sterile. Everything has its appropriate place and mm -hmm. it all has to be clean and it all has to be in the right spot mm -hmm. until you turn the drill on. Right. And the blood gets everywhere. Right. That's, that's what it reminds me of. It reminds me of an operation. Like uh -huh. it, there's, there is a method for every thing that he does every single sound yeah which is its, has its part that's such a great point to make because that's really i think that that should be part and parcel to every recording that's made um i agree you know uh getting back to what you said about your conversation with jonathan wyman the the notion is that or, or the, the whole thing should start with arrangement you know and the notion in terms of yes. recording anything mixing anything and mastering anything always goes back to arrangement and as you're saying, when Trent makes a record, he very purposely, he knows, it's almost like hearing a, a rock symphony in some ways, like for lack yeah. of a better way, like, yeah. it seems like it's very well thought out and planned out, but it's very musical and emotional and yeah. great. And that's so important because um, I feel like, especially given today's technology, and I'm not a today technology basher, and I'm not, uh, you, I think we should probably go down this road at some point, but you had mentioned, you know, some people maybe, I, I might take, be taking your words or paraphrasing incorrectly, sure, tell me sure. if I am, but sort of this feeling of like the record business isn't what it used to be, and people sort of complaining about that or not embracing new technology, not Kind of folding their arms. Yeah, and, and that's so... Stiff upper lip. That's so wrong, in my opinion. Yeah, I, 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 I live in the same world that you do or have the same mindset as you do in the sense that this is a brave, new, and, and optimistic world that we live in. Yeah. In a lot of ways, I think so much good is coming of it and is going to continue to come of it, whether it's recording technology itself and or... I'm really excited about you know the, the the new means of distribution and streaming in so many ways. In where, what you know, way? Yeah, so many different ways. I think that one, there's so much growth there. If you look at, so I've always lived in this world where I love music, of course, for music's sake and for art's sake. But I've been a professional in the recording business my entire life, and that's how I you know feed my family, yeah, and yeah. keep a roof above us. Which is the, what a concept. What a concept, <laughs> yeah. right? And that's so important. And I um. I may have said this in, in class before, Ned, uh, mm -hmm. at USM, but I feel like the 90s was a, this perfect culmination of artistry and commercial viability. Mm -hmm. It was like you could make really great music, and a lot of really great artistic music was getting to the masses and was commercially viable at right. that time. And I feel very fortunate to have lived through that time. I feel like it's sort of like what the 60s and 70s must have felt like in some ways. Sure. Um, so I pine for a recording industry that is thriving again, and I think that streaming presents such a huge opportunity for that to happen. But I think the people that are folding their arms over and saying they want to go back to the good old days are just digging their, you know, putting their heads in the sand, and they need to it's get their shame. heads out of the sand <laughs> and move forward. Some of those people are really talented and really good, oh, of too. Of course, they are, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough thing, and I understand it, because all of a sudden, what, what may have been viable for a lot of people in this industry 10 or 15 years ago is not anymore. And that's, that's a bitter pill to swallow. I get that. I, I totally get that. But I feel as though there are too many folks feeling that way, and they're, instead of fixing anything, because they're looking at the past for a fix, they're they're holding back the future. Yes. That's, I think, the best way to put it. <laughs> is. That seems to be the modern American mindset right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's like, we can't we can't look to the past to try to fix our problems in the right. present. We need to look to the future right. and where we live Reverse now. engineer. Right. Yeah. Where yeah. do you want to be and then go back 
10 steps. Yeah. Which makes me kind of think about, like, as far as one thing that we've been talking about, Ned and I, um, we were talking about music and pursuing a career and all that, and we were, what do we call it? We said it was basically, like, productivity, uh, experiments and productivity. Yeah. Sure. That's really all it is. Like, how efficient can you be in, in your day-to-day? So what are some things that you do, like, when you first work, uh, like, wake up, do you go and work out? Do you eat a big breakfast? Is there anything that you avoid doing? Mm-hmm. Do you not answer emails right away? So what does your average day look like? How do you stay well, how do you get and stay productive every single day? That's a really great question. I do work out every day. Um, I'm a runner, a distance runner, so I try to get that in every day. This time of year, it's a little tough, uh, especially the past couple of days. With yeah, the weather we've had, right. But I, I do other things like uh, spin bike or ride my ride my bike uh, mm-hmm. in, in better weather and, and like that. But I do find that exercise is hugely important to me. Yeah. It helps me reduce stress. It helps me yeah. focus. It's like, you know... Yeah. For people that meditate, it's as close to meditating as I get. Like, mm-hmm. I get out and run, and everything just kind of peels away, and it, and it starts yeah. my day off really well. I also have a young family, so I have kids, you know, that take care of and get them to school uh, along with my wife. Um, but I usually, when I get up in the morning, I almost immediately start reading. Uh, I usually need a little time before I can exercise. I usually try to, you know, read a little bit. Uh, get myself, and reading for me is usually like news and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. which helps me kind of wake up and, and focus myself a little bit, um, go out and run, you know, walk my dog, get my kids to school, all that kind of stuff. I usually have like a whole, you know, what feels like a, uh, at least a third of a day or a half a day that I do before I even step into the studio. And that mm-hmm. sets up the rest of my day. Cause I don't have to worry about those things. Morning routine is important. Yeah. It's really important. Um, and then I come in here, I'm here at 10. I usually work until sometime in the six o'clock, occasionally into the seven or eight o'clock hour if it's really mm-hmm. busy. I try not to work crazy hours because I think it's counterproductive. Yeah. Um, uh, given the way that we communicate now, um, I'm communicating with clients throughout the day over email, sometimes over Facebook, over text, over phone. Uh, my front office is communicating with clients as well and setting sessions up for me in that regard. And I'm just I'm just getting through all my sessions in a day. And, and most days it's certainly more than one, if not several. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll juggle other things. There are things that I don't, I, I honestly don't love doing, but I think are so important today, um, like social media. I've been really right. in the past year or so, I've tried to step up my social media game because, for, you know, obviously this is a, a, an audio medium we're on now, but we're sitting in front of a stack of CDs and DVDs and, <laughs> yeah. and box sets and things like that. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, credits, uh, liner notes were always the bread and butter of this business and I mean, word of mouth and, and what records you've worked on. And these days, most people don't see liner notes. No. Um, and social media is one of the best places to be between that and maintaining Interesting. Websites. I've never really thought of it that way. Yeah. And, um, I, I Four years ago, five years ago, I was really reluctant to do that. My sister, who's a really brilliant person, works in PR, and she's like, you should be on Twitter every day and Facebook. And I was right. like, you know what? And this is true, I, and I stand by this, but five years ago, most of the people in this business that were busy, especially those that never lived with social media and, and didn't live with the, you know, lived a good part of their adult life even without the internet, uh, would think, oh, that person's on social media, so they must not be busy enough. Like, you know, that it would right. be like a, it would actually be seen as yeah. a negative as yeah. opposed to a positive. Yeah, and, for sure. And that's finally shifted because, like, yeah. virtually everybody's on social media now. Right. And I've really tried my hardest to tap into it as just a means of, and I hate self promotion. It doesn't feel good to me, but it's like if I don't do it, nobody's doing it. Mark right. of a true artist, I feel. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, I absolutely really dislike doing it. All I want to do is master records, but. If I'm not active on the internet, then I feel like I feel like that's part of. That's a way to pull it in to keep to you in, give exactly. you more work to keep you busy and keep exactly. you doing what you love. And I try to do it in a way that feels really good to me in terms genuine, of genuine, genuine, right. yeah. which is that's it's obviously hard. super yeah. super important. Yeah, um, being genuine, trying not to to seem like you're a braggart, right. <laughs> and and trying to like and this is how I live my life anyways but shine a light on other people you know it's a good opportunity if mm-hmm. if one of my clients one of their recordings is doing really well that's what I'm going to talk about is you know congratulations to that artist for how well that record's doing and oh right. wow it's really privileged to get to work on that and right. those kinds of things so I pepper that stuff in throughout the day as well mm-hmm. because I feel like that's become so important in our industry because there are so few ways we don't advertise and you know and, and I think advertising would have a huge negative effect on what we do plus I don't even know where we would advertise I get written up in, in various publications that are nationwide publications sure. these days. I don't know if anybody's seen them. And they're, they're like 
they're very specific in what they are. Yeah. It's it's niche. Whoever yep. whoever is seeking them out probably already knows who you are. Exactly. Yeah. And so even like, you know, having a write-up and, and no disrespect to Mix Magazine, it's the, the, the leader in terms of recording industry publications, but having a write-up in Mix Magazine, that happens like almost once a year or once every other year for me, being involved in something in their magazine. And I don't necessarily, I'm not sure how much that moves the needle in terms of people knowing more right. about me. Yeah. What, what actually helps even more is when that happens that I post it on social media and I blast it out. Yeah, okay, so you can send a link right. to the article that's online. Exactly. That I think gets for me, again, because the, the, the niche part of it is like, I have a niche too, so that gets that to my niche of people, you know. Um, so those things I try to pepper in on most days when I can. Even if it's just, you know, I'm taking a two-minute break, shoot something off on Facebook that's interesting mm -hmm. or on Twitter or both or an, an, an Instagram and, and those kinds of things. Things that five or six years ago I never would have done and I, I didn't right. really want it, truthfully want to do. Right. Um, I've become much more comfortable with it now, but, um, uh, you know, my passion is just being in the chair mastering. Um, uh, but I think that those those things are so important in the 21st century and so many different businesses. My, my PR sister is very right about it, mm -hmm. um, but even has become really important in our business, which has mostly been word of mouth all these years. Yeah. So that's an, uh, kind of another thing I want to talk about is Gateway in general has like this amazing reputation within the business and is kind of held as the standard. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is about the way that you guys work, both with clients and maybe other business partners or what you bring to the table that might be a little bit different than how other people are approaching it. That's a really great point. Um, uh, and I don't want to sound disrespectful. This isn't a knock to, uh, if I can take the other, the way other people approach sure, it, sure. part aside, yeah, because yeah. That, you know, um, uh, there, are, there are a lot of good people out there doing a lot of good yes, things. Absolutely. But there's one thing, one word that always comes to my mind that I think defines gateway really well. And it comes, it comes from Bob, it comes from me and it comes from everybody here. And it's one of the things that, that, um, Bob has said to me over the years, especially earlier on in my career when I was assisting him and then when I started taking on my own projects, is integrity. Um, and, and one of the things that is, is I think, been a bond between him and I and that he has said to me before is that he can always trust me. I have a level of integrity that he sure. feels is on par with his level of integrity. Because you're representing him by, by working here. Yeah, yeah, and representing Gateway. Re yeah. And, and I think that we both... We both have a very similar mindset in whatever that, you know, that the however you can frame what that word means. Um, and I think that that in itself speaks for itself. We take a lot, we have a lot of passion for what we do, and we put a lot of energy into what we do. And we always only want to do the right thing. Like we, you know, it's very easy in anything to let other things cloud what you're doing. And we don't, it's just integrity. It's just doing the best job possible, treating our, treating our clients most respectfully as possible. Mm -hmm. And whether you're Joe from down the street or you're, uh, um, I don't know, some superstar artist like Carrie Underwood, you get treated the same way when you work with me or Bob, uh, no matter who you are. Yes. Um, if you're our client and we decide to work with you, um, we treat you the same way, which means we give you 110% no matter who you are. And, and we've had a number of, that's always been one of, the, I think, our biggest compliments. We've had a number of clients say that kind of thing before. Yeah. Uh, a couple of years ago, Bob and I did an AES panel together that he was moderating. I was on the panel with a few other mastering engineers. And when it got to the Q&A, a client of mine who I didn't realize was in the audience stood up and just said, you know, something to the effect that he wanted to say hello to us and he wanted to thank for working on his record with him and he wanted to thank Bob and I for treating him like he was Bruce Springsteen or any, and, and he's an independent client making great music yeah. but he was like you guys treated me so well and we were like well that's the way we should treat you Your, yeah. our clients are gold to us and we don't care who right. you are um, and I think that that's really important the as relationship well. is very important yeah relationships and, and I try to maintain and cultivate relationships with my clients as best as possible because I, that's everything that our business is about and that's um that's what I want it to be too. I want to work with people I like yeah, to work with right. yeah, sure. that I have a good rapport with. And I, I, right. I'm always going to treat them with not only the utmost respect, but like, you know, we treat our clients in a very high way we treat them like gold and, and kill them with kindness. And that's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. Um, in my opinion, and, and having started in this industry in the, the mid nineties and then seeing sort of the tail end of the best times in this industry into some of the hardest times in this industry, I've always, always felt like, I mean, number one, I think that that's part of my personality, but I've always felt that way about my clients. It's always been like, 
you know, customer first. And my yeah. clients are like gold to me because that's how we exist is by having right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And not to mention the fact that, you know, my teenage self is in my body all day long, trying not to jump out of my own skin when I get to work on some yes. great music, right? Yeah. And it's just like, this is, if I could go back and ask my 16-year-old self if this is what I'd be doing, I'd be like, yeah, right. I, <laughs> I wish it's what I'd be doing. So I, And I keep that in mind every day, yeah. that it's a privilege to work in the music business. It's a privilege yeah. to work on great music and to do it in a place that, as you said, and and and... I agree with that, and I agree that Gateway was that before I was here, and I and I hold that as sort of you know my mantle in terms of what I do here as well as trying to be the best of our industry, right. um, and you know it's still sort of like pinching yourself every day that you get to do this <laughs> stuff. So it, you know of course I treat my clients really really well and and work as hard as I can to make their music sound as good as it can and uh and i don't want to say that nobody else that, that other uh, our colleagues out there in the world aren't sure, doing that, sure, but i can right. just speak from my experience, experience a couple yeah. of things that i think maybe um uh are, are, are why people look at us the way that they do in right. this industry yeah so you've had you have the basically this this massive discography of a ton of different people from all different styles of music that you've worked with mm -hmm. i'm sure at some point you must have worked with someone that you really look up to or a project like you did with the lights out for Nirvana. Were you a big fan of them growing up? Oh yeah, absolutely. So this is coming into you, and you have it, and then you're like, "Oh shit, what do I do now?" Like th right. these are sacred to me. Right. So how do you approach a situation like that with something that you feel like you have your own personal, I guess, past experiences with, and maybe mm -hmm. memories related to, and now you're almost in a way rewriting that. Yeah, there there have been a number of instances fortunately for me like that, mm -hmm. and I think that you've got to try to turn off. Um, uh, you sort of have to turn off the, for lack of a better way of saying it, fanboy part of it. Like, yeah, know, yeah. When I got to work on some of that Nirvana stuff, uh, it was like, whoa! I grew up listening to these records, and oh, I'm getting to hear what smells like Teen Spirit, that Butch Vig mix. That was one of the things I got. Bob and I did that one together, that with the lights out, um, and I got to do the the Butch Vig uh, mix of Smells Like Teen Spirit, which was sort of that that mythical, you know, Butch had mixed the album and the band loved it, and then somebody else mixed the album and the band always said they liked, you know, Butch's Butch mix was more like what they wanted, and the other mix was more like what the record label wanted. Like everybody can read that story in so many different places, and to hear that kind of stuff, I was like, oh wow, yeah. I, my, two or three of the bands that I played in when I was in high school would play that song, you know? Yeah. But I think you have to, and I've had a lot of experiences like that, and some of them with people in the room, too. And I think you just have to be calm, cool, and collected and just focus on... Getting, getting the task right, done. Getting the task done and doing you, it you as have a, you can. You have a discipline, you need to do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then I can go home and, like, talk to my wife about it and be the favorite. Right, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> right. I think that's really important uh, because I think that it, um, I don't know, it, it focuses you in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, and it keeps you from letting that those emotions cloud your inability to, right. to think your straight judgment, or do your, your ears, yeah, exactly, yeah. or do your work well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I try. I, I feel like I've figured out early on how to turn some of those things off, so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't affect you having good command in right. the studio and doing a good job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I could see that when you were teaching too. Uh -huh. Like when when I first came into your class, one of the first things that I noticed about you was just like. For a guy who's like got all these Grammys and like platinum records, like you, you really didn't seem to have any sort of chip on your shoulder. And I was uh, really amazed at like how how down to earth it felt. Like the, the setting of our class, like of course we we're just like looking at you, like this guy really knows what he's talking about. And, uh, <laughs> That's really kind of notes. <laughs> but I, I thought it was really cool that you know you were you were at the end of the day a very down to earth guy, and you you talked about um, in the in class about how you know one of your strong like suits mm -hmm. um in what you do is the fact that you're very good at being tactful mm -hmm. with other people and you you're like what you were talking about you're able to right. kind of like put your put your ego aside and just kind of work with what is actually the most effective way of communicating with people not letting you know egos clash because you know musicians and their egos you know can get a little volatile <laughs> can get fuzzy. Yeah. we've all been in a band so yeah. yeah i think do you feel like it was naturally your personality to have um that type of like uh dynamic with other people that you work with is that something you you know worked on or was that just kind of a trait you had going into the business 
I mean, probably a little bit of both. Probably mostly something that was just my personality. That's just yeah. who I am. Um, right. And I, and I don't want to be anybody but myself. And I don't want. I, I see people, whether it's in this business or just in life in general, that walk around either mm -hmm. with an attitude or right. a chip on their shoulder, yeah. or any number of things you could think of. Uh, that you might expect from somebody like that. And negativity is just, uh, I can't imagine how exhausting it is. Right. I don't want to exhaust my energy yes. being negative. Oh, and angry. Being angry yeah, yeah. or uh, having a chip on my shoulder or thinking more right. highly of myself right. than I should or any of those things, um, I think just are a waste of time and energy, number one. Yep. And I think that that is my personality. It's my upbringing. It's my personality. That's just who I am. And mm -hmm. and I, I really feel fortunate like I can just be myself yeah. and be successful without having to put on yeah. some, some other hat yeah. or some other... In a professional yeah. world. That's a, yeah. Especially in the music thing. business, there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of people... From what what I've just encountered in, in my journeys and my experience, they try and put on a lot of a lot of mask, and I think mm -hmm. it's important sometimes to be a chameleon, but you can't you can't hide your true nature. Yeah, I I think that really has to shine through, and I I can definitely tell from you that the positive energy comes across, mm -hmm. and you kind of pull it in. People right. people want to talk to you because of it. Right. Yeah. Well, I think I just think it's again, all I can say for myself is that the. The positive energy is just that actually is uplifting as opposed to being negative or right. having an attitude right. or any of those things. And I, again, that's just kind of how I've always been. I mean, I've never, I've never felt, not only I've never felt the need to, but I've also quite the opposite. Even growing up as a kid, when I would see somebody being treated disrespectfully or unkind by somebody else or bullied or anything, I'd be the first one to try to help stick up for that person right. that was mm -hmm. in that position because I'd be like, well, why are you acting like that? Don't right. be a jerk, you know, right. yeah. to the person that was treating them that way because it's just not how, that's just not how I am. And I don't think there's any, right. one, I don't think there's any need for it. Um, as long as people are respectful and treat me respectfully, they're going to get the same from me and they're going to get positivity from yeah. me. Um, and I just can't imagine how exhausting it is to live that other way. Right. And and then back to the practical side of it, like I, I think that when you're working with anybody for that matter, but certainly in this business, when you're working with artists and working with other people, you've got to be able to read the room. You've got to know how to get the best out of everybody. Um, you know, you're dealing with people's art. It's very near and dear and very personal. Even here where we're not recording tracks, this is where artists have to they have to let go after this process mm -hmm. is done. And fortunately, they're always really happy to be here and they're they're mostly very happy with everything up to this point and, and mm -hmm. I get to kinda like see them over the finish line and yeah. that's a really good feeling. Right. But still, you know, some people might be nervous, some people might be trepidatious, they're finishing up something they've been working on for a long time. Mm -hmm. Something very angel. personal. Something very personal. A snapshot right? of their life. Like Yep. With with something like that, this is this is with it being the last. Thinking about it as like a factory, this is the last part of the line. They're coming to you, right before they they let it go. So there might right. be baggage prior to you coming into the picture. Like yep. maybe they they did a song that they didn't really like, or uh, the producer felt a certain way about it, and the the artist ended up going with their way. Then they regret it, and they bring it to you. So yeah. what's it like managing expectations of an artist when they when they first walk in? Um, gosh, that's a really good question. I think that, uh, every situation is definitely different and every artist is different. Sure. I'll also say that it, really these days, 90, 95% of the time I'm working on my own. I'm doing my thing and sending it back yeah. to and we talk and, uh, and like that. But, um, every artist is a little bit different. I, you know, we're all people. We can read each other pretty well. When somebody comes in, I can tell whether they're nervous or they're anxious mm -hmm. or they're, they're really confident in what they already have and, and like that. Um, so every situation is a little bit different. In ter terms of managing expectations, I think fortunately if they've gotten here, then they already, um, they already know they want to be here. You know, they already, they, they, yes. so they've already sought out to work with them or Bob downstairs and, and, uh, they already want to be here and they know what they're going to get and they know what we do. Um, Certainly earlier on in my career, especially because I was really young when I first started. I started here when I was 22, and I started mastering records when I was about 25. And I certainly remember for a number of years, clients would come if they would attend, and we haven't met before. I could certainly get the sense with, not with all of them certainly, but with some of them, they're like, who is this guy? Like, how old is he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, right. and, and being a little nervous, especially since most of my colleagues, most other mastering engineers are a lot older than me. Mm -hmm. You know, there are very few, that, there are a handful I can think of that are about my age. I don't mm -hmm. think very many that are younger, maybe some that are within 10 years of me. But most of them doing it 
the level that I am are, are quite a bit older than I am. So when I was in my, especially when I was in my 20s, they, you know, occasionally you'd have somebody come in the door and I could tell right away they were a little trepidatious. Like they knew of my reputation. They knew of Gateway's reputation and the whole thing. But they were like, they'd walk in and be like, when did this guy start? When he was like 15 or something. <laughs> yes. But I would always just tr try my hardest to win them over and it would, it would always right. happen. And I yeah. think that it's that demeanor, that positive personality right. and a command of what you're doing too, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, as you said, sometimes you can be working with somebody who you really respect and who you really love and, you know, grew up listening to their music and you've got to kind of turn that off. And that's not, I don't mean that by any means in a disrespectful way, but you've got to be confident in yourself. Yeah. And you're be, here for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. Which can be hard sometimes to do. Yeah. And be confident in what you're doing. Yeah. And, you know, certainly this is a subjective, it's just kind of an art in itself. And sometimes you'll have a client say, well, I think maybe this or that. And I'm always open to that. It's something I learned really early on from Bob. Like, well, let's try it. You know, let's see, and then give my opinion and the whole thing. But being confident about all of those things and not letting anybody rattle you is really important because mm -hmm. I think things things have changed so much in the industry since I started out. But when I started out, an engineer's uh, competence and confidence yeah. <laughs> were like his two best traits or her best traits yeah if you can show that you're competent that you're confident you're in command of your tools and in command of what's going on and that doesn't mean you're barking at people or right. you're like you know bossing people around that quite the opposite of right. that it's just more like you're confident and competent in what you're doing and achieving right. the goals of the people you're working with mm -hmm. then you you gain their confidence and that's right. hugely important the very first time i ever uh uh and it wasn't a mastering session. It was before I was a mastering engineer. But the very first time I ever sat in a session with a client who was a well-known artist, it was an editing session. And I kind of got through in at the end of the day into this editing session um, with the artist, her producer, and her engineer. All lovely people. Um, all really well-respected in our industry. Making a great record. I had never sat in at that level with, with an artist editing and I was just learning the workstation here yeah um, I had learned it a little bit before I came here but I didn't know it super well so I was a little nervous and I felt a little thrown to the wolves but I came in and I conducted myself I think in a really positive good way uh, it was also I think somewhat a, um, a, a nervous or anxious session for the artist mm -hmm. um, got through it everything went exceptionally well showed that competence and confidence and the, the artist was back the next day because they were mastering with Bob they were back for another day of mastering and at the end of that day Bob made it a point I had only been here for a couple of months to tell me that that artist had made it a point to tell him how impressed she was with me and and with just my sort of lack of a better phrase bedside manner in the studio and, and sure you know, yeah yeah the ability That's a great to, way to put to, it yeah it's yeah. like being sort of like being a doctor in yeah, some ways or hopefully yeah. a good doctor like you can <laughs> yeah. You you know you can do your best for your patient. In this case, do your tip best top for your health. Artists. Yep, right. and um, uh, that really was meaningful to me, and that that gave me even more confidence. I think moving forward, but I think you have to go into it. And of course, the confidence comes from um, comes from knowing your stuff too. Yeah. But even in do that it. situation, I, yeah, just do it. Right. Even in that situation, it was like I knew the workstation pretty well, but not well enough where I felt like. You know, I did feel a little bit nervous, but I didn't yeah. show that nervousness off. And, and I that's when you grow. Well. Yeah, exactly. It's when you get thrown to the wolves. It's like the most yeah. valuable times I've had is when maybe I've gone on stage or I've gotten into a situation where I wasn't entirely sure about how I do. Yeah. And you either eat complete shit and you learn a gigantic lesson. Yeah. Or your abilities, they get a little bit beyond what you thought they were just in that right. very moment. It yeah. makes you grow and it gives you this whole new level of confidence. And it's like this endorphin boost that happens. It's just like, I got to keep going, got to keep going, got to keep right. going. Yeah. And good for you for knowing that because I think that that's really important because some people don't take those chances because they're too afraid of eating that big pile of shit. But you're going to learn something from that. I hope from, to eat many that. big piles of shit. <laughs> yeah. Because you're going to, as you said, you learn from that. And that's so important. Yeah. Like I, I've always felt that way as well. Just dive in and do it. Like the worst thing you can do is do nothing because you're going to learn nothing and you're going to stay right where you are exactly so it seems that you have a really great work ethic where do you think that was that instilled in you from your parents or was it from music teachers or it was really instilled in me from my parents for sure they both have amazing work ethics um they're both really hard workers uh uh one thing my dad always said and i'll sort of paraphrase it but i remember this from 
forever ago is my, my dad always saying any, you know, any job that you do is worth doing well or anything that you yeah. do is yes, worth right. doing well. Absolutely. And don't that's half-ass. Yeah, don't half-ass. Any job you do is worth doing well. That's that's my dad's side of it. And my mom's side of it is just this amazing work ethic and uh, I think confidence too in, in, in her work ethic and the way that she does things. Um, yeah. And sometimes even obsessiveness. My sister and I joke where we can be both be uh, our only siblings. Um, uh we both have a strong work ethic that comes from our parents and we get obsessive about certain things right. too, like you hunt things down, yeah. which I think is really important. Yeah. That, that, that I think comes from my mom. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think that, that that's where it all comes from. And then I'd also say that going to the University of Massachusetts at Lowell and their sound recording program instilled like another layer of that or helped that go even further and shine mm -hmm. even more because there's that's one thing, one of those intangible things that that program has, I think, heads above anywhere else is uh, a, a work ethic, a vibe about work work ethic around. It's very New England. It's very New England. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And it's very, it's, I think it speaks well to the student body there too. Yeah. Like most of the people that go there come from families with very strong work ethics. Yeah. Uh, uh, and the program is designed, I mean, you can't get through that program without having a good work ethic because they, they kind of, you know, uh, make you work really, really hard for it. Um, uh, and that I think is an intangible that's meant to be there in that program. Mm -hmm. Because you know what, if you can't, if you can't deal with working on calculus to three in the morning or doing overnight recording sessions for your recording classes and doing all the other things you have to do to get through that program, you're not going to survive in this business. You don't want it enough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. I, one thing that I've started to notice just with people that I've encountered in this is that you either want to do it or you don't. Yeah. The, and you can say that you want to do it all day long, but your actions really show through as yeah. far as you're going to do it or you're not going to do it. Like mm -hmm. one movie that we've talked about that's had a great impact on me is Whiplash. Have you seen that movie? Uh, I don't yeah. think I have. No. Okay, this is amazing. <laughs> okay. So I, I, I don't want to give away too much about it, but it's um, about this drum student. He's, I think he's like 18 or 19. He's, he's in college, it's his first year. Mm -hmm. And he has this crazy teacher who plays all of these psychological games with him. And mm -hmm. there's this one scene where he's sitting down where he's telling a story, I think it's about Charlie Parker, mm -hmm. and how he ends up eating shit one night on stage, and he was a laughing stock or whatever, and then he came back the next year, and he, he was playing at Carnegie Hall or something like that, and he blew everybody away with the most amazing right. solo, because he practiced for like nine hours a day, yeah. and he wouldn't stop, and I think what he said was the next Charlie Parker wouldn't be discouraged, and I think that's true, it's like mm -hmm. you can have so much thrown at you, and I know I've had a bunch of challenges, Ned's had a bunch of challenges that we've had to face along this journey, but it's like you're dragging all this weight behind you and it's only making you stronger. Yeah. 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 I and it's scary it's sometimes. Yeah. It is. It's scary, but you've got to keep pulling it. And the other, the other part of that too, is you never know like what's going to happen tomorrow either. You no. could be pulling that weight the whole time and then just decide, you know what, I'm going to, I'm just going to drop this now and go do something else. But you don't right. know like what the opportunity is waiting for you the next day. Right. Yeah. And I think for all of us that just keep slogging it out, those opportunities show up. Um, and they're not just luck, you know, and right. some it's of them are work. luck, but yeah. it's, it's, hard, it's all hard work. Yeah. And it's also, uh, you know, opportunity meeting preparedness is really important. Yes. But right. you, if you don't keep pulling that weight, you're not going to get those opportunities. I got so, that in the fortune cookie once. Oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs> luck is opportunity meeting uh, preparation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah it's, no, it's it, it, that's how I look at my own career was opportunity right. meeting preparedness because right. I got the opportunity to be here. But believe me, I'm not the only engineer that's been here over the past 18 years, and uh, but I'm one of the only ones that's that's. Uh, I'm certainly the only one that has their own own room here, mm -hmm. and and every time an opportunity even came up within you know, the macro opportunity being here in the first place, the little micro opportunities over the years, yeah. I just jump into. Yeah, and you be prepared for them, and if you're not prepared for them, you try them anyways. Yeah, mm -hmm. and just you know, and and and. Uh, uh, make something of it. Right. Yeah. So thinking of it in terms of the productivity study that we were discussing earlier, okay. what are some ways that you try and work smarter, not harder? Not necessarily uh -huh. cut corners, but things where you're like, this has to be done. Do you have a exact boilerplate for every project that you do? Or is it different every time? Or what do you do? Do you write everything down? Like, how do you do it? I do. I keep notes on everything so I can recall it. Um, I do have templates. Uh, you know, I use Pro Tools for playing back mixes and, and for plugs. I have a ton of hardware, most of which doesn't get used very much anymore. And um, Pyramix is the place where all the recorded, or excuse me, all the mastered audio ends up for final editing and final output. And so I do have templates, both in the Pyramix and the Pro Tools that I go to every day as a starting point. And then, you know, that's just a starting point. I change things from there. Um, 
I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought for a second, but uh, I start with those and then for me, and I think every engineer is a little bit different, I just dig in and start doing things. Not willy-nilly, but I yeah. you know, start out with, with the control being the templates and my signal path staying relatively the same. Also knowing so much about so many pieces of gear I've used over the years if I want to inject something new into the signal path or something I've used in the past mm -hmm. for a specific reason, having that, that as part of my tool set. But I have my signal path usually set up in a certain way, my templates set up in a certain way, and those are my, my jumping off points. Then I hit play and I just start doing it. I don't, some people will say they, they like to listen through, if it's a full album, maybe listen through the full album in, in terms of the mixes. And, I, you know, I wouldn't discourage anybody from doing what feels best for them, but for me, there's I just dive in and for start. Everybody. Yeah, there's a method for everybody, exactly. I just start doing things. I start turning knobs and things, and if I need a reality check as to where the mix started, I go, I'll go back and listen to the mix, but I sort of dive right in. Um, I take notes so I can recall everything, but what I've been doing for several years now, and forgive me, Ned, I know you've heard this a few times, but <laughs> I've been working so much in the box now, mm -hmm. which has afforded me a number of different things, and it it's started for me in terms of working almost exclusively in the box it started for me as a challenge to see how productive or how efficient I could be on a certain project and then I realized like whoa you know this has gotten keeps getting so much better every year that this being the in the box plug-in processing keeps getting so much better where I went not quite overnight, but over the course of several months, went from many, many years of using a hybrid signal path where I used a lot of analog outboard mm. gear, some digital outboard gear, in conjunction with, with plugs in the box, and that was my signal path, to and, and occasionally all digital for something that sounded really great and didn't need a lot of work, to the complete opposite, like pretty much everything uh, all digital and pretty much everything all in the box now. Right. Um, and very rarely am I firing up the analog yeah. stuff anymore. And that was first born out of trying to be as efficient as I could be on a particular project. And of course, I wouldn't, to get back to integrity, if, if that wasn't doing it, I would have had to be less efficient and get the best sonic results, and I would have backed off of it. But I was pleasantly surprised at efficiency and quality meeting each other perfectly, mm -hmm. and then kept challenging myself to do that more and more to the point where for several years now I do everything in the box, or virtually everything in the box. And that helps productivity a lot, yeah. because I can do more automation, right. I can recall things in a different way. Um, and it, and it also helped things creatively as well, you know, where I could do things that otherwise... New colors. Yeah, new colors and uh, and sometimes new colors in itself yield new creativity. New colors in more control, mm -hmm. you know, because now I can automate things that I might have done by hand on an analog equalizer. Right. I can just automate them and do more of that. And that's forced me, not forced me, but opened up the doors for me to do even more of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the the intangibles in terms of what I do as well and, and Bob as well is like, we really dig in. We're not afraid to try anything as long as we think it's going to make things sound better and staying in the box helps us do more of that um in a more practical manner so on a closing note what is some advice uh, that you would give to, to anyone listening to this who's really trying to figure out not even necessarily with music but as far as career path mm -hmm. and having discipline work ethic all those things if you could go back, I guess, and talk to the 20-year-old version of you when you're still in college and you yeah. didn't know what your path was going to be yet, what would you say? I would say a couple of things. Number one, um, I would say get comfortable with with networking and knowing people because that's just that's how things work. And it's not a who you know, not what you know. I don't believe in that at all. It's who you know and, and what you know. Mm -hmm. um, but when I was young, in my early 20s, I, I wasn't as outgoing as I am now. And I found because like, I would want to network in a very organic way too. Like I just never felt comfortable with it or I didn't feel comfortable with it for a while. And that really is a big part of our business. So that's an important skill to work on. Mm -hmm. For And, and, and uh, I venture, I'm just going to guess, but for a lot of people growing up with screens and, and you know, uh, uh, constant um, internet interaction, I'm sure for some people that's even more difficult than ever. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's really important. In terms of 21st century starting out in the music business now, I think that you have to be willing to do a number of different things. And by that I mean be willing to chase down a number of different paths, which I did early on. I, I did everything from multi-track recording and mixing to mastering. Uh, anytime, any opportunity, do a live-to-track recording of a classical 
ensemble at Harvard, I did that. Uh, uh, record lawyer conferences at the Ritz-Carlton in, in downtown Boston, I did that. Like, I would try anything to see what was a good what path. So, yeah. so yeah, don't be afraid to have a wide net, especially now. Have right. a wide net and see what sticks and see what not only sticks in terms of making a living, but sticks in terms of what you enjoy doing because it might not be what you think it is and vice versa. Um, on a practical note, one thing a lot of people have been asking me for several years, and you're experiencing it yourself, Taylor, is where do you go now? And Nashville seems to be the place. A vast majority of my clients are in Nashville. Yeah, there's um, a lot going on there. There's a lot going on there. I've known so many clients over the years, uh, record producers, record recording engineers, mixing engineers, artists, songwriters, all moving from other major cities to Nashville. New York City seems to me like it's just dying in terms of it being a center for music in the recording industry. So Which it's is way sad. too expensive there. It is very sad because a lot of cool, cool music has come from New York for a lot mm -hmm. of years. Um, I would never send anybody to New York today. Really? <laughs> I, I wouldn't. I mean, there's I, there are some opportunities there. Um, but how do you live there? It's it's like right. impossible to live there. Especially you if you're a young, starving artist. Exactly. It's it's really tough. L.A., maybe so. And, and I think as a recording engineer, Los Angeles has a lot going for it, not only in the music world, but you have the whole film and video industry there, which is, a, a, I think, a big you know path folks that love audio could go down. I considered it myself before I, I decided to stay in music. But Nashville seems to be the place everybody's going. I'm not saying it's it's an easy thing, but um, if you if, if you want to be in a music center right now, that seems to be the place to be, especially if you want to be in the recording world. I'm sorry, I didn't do something. Right. I, was just gonna say, I did yeah, something. I think right. I think you I think you absolutely <laughs> right. did. Yeah, I think you absolutely did. <laughs> um, and, and I think you have to be willing to do that. Like I, I've had this conversation with people living in New England, and 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 I hope for people that want to stay in New England and want to do what we do in New England, they, they can make an effort of it. But in your younger years, I feel like you've got to get up and if you've got to, if you have the opportunity to get up and move, you've got to get up and do it then. Yes. You know, and maybe you establish yourself and you can come back here or something. Um, and also to that point, uh, uh, you know, I'm also really reluctant to ever point a young person in the direction of massive student loan debt. I, I'm a firm believer in higher education, and I, and I think that is really yeah. important in terms of music and the recording industry. But I'd be selective about where you do it and, yeah. and how you do it because I can't imagine, you know, being a young student coming out of uh, a higher educational institution with hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. of student loan debt, you're not going to be able to. Have it's not. It's not feasible. It's like, not. Well, totally is not. That's Make the one thing. Head in the sand. Yeah, that, <laughs> that me and Ned always talked about because me yeah. and Ned, we've we've gone down a similar path but two different paths. Yeah. Um, uh, because yeah. Ned has chosen to go to school, and I've I've always been, I've gotten almost like three or four times I've thought about going and uh, I've started applying and I've started doing it, and I'm like I just can't do it. Yeah, Something right. feels wrong about this. I'm going to be in all of this debt. Yeah. And then I'm not going to be able to do music. I'm right. going to have to get a job or I'm going to have to get a job that I don't like just to pay this back so my life is right. on track, yeah. right. air quotes. Exactly. And I think that, um, again, I'm like, I, I really firmly believe in, in uh, you know, the, the opportunities that could be afforded to you with, the, with a bachelor's sure. degree. But if you do that, I think that, and, and that's not necessarily right for everybody. Yeah. But if you do that, I think you've got to pick your points too. You've got to, you know, you've got to do it in a way that's cost effective. It's definitely been um, a struggle sometime as far as even just with normal jobs out in Nashville, there's so many young people moving there mm -hmm. who all have degrees. So if I'm going up for a job, right. there have been jobs I've been, even though I might have, you know, five plus more years experience in the workforce than them and life experience, I'm automatically disqualified because right. they don't see that degree when I put in my resume. Right. Yeah. So and that, and that, there's there's importance to that, but I think that there's also uh, um, figuring out the right situation as yes. well. Getting crafty, yeah, getting it's, crafty. It's forced me to get clever with yeah. with just myself. Yeah. So usually we have a uh, a quote at the end of the podcast. So I figured I could have you read this. I'd be happy to. <laughs> so it's right down there. Okay. I think there's something musical about noise, and that's attributed to Trent Reznor. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming <laughs> yeah, out today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Yeah.